Hello, and welcome to The Reader podcast. My name is Frances, and I work for The Reader, which is a national charity bringing thousands of people together every week all over the UK in order to experience and enjoy great literature through shared reading. You may have noticed, if you're a regular listener, that this podcast took a break over the summer. This was partly because the publications team at The Reader, including me, were hard at work on the new issue of The Reader magazine, which is out now. You can find subscriptions and single copies for sale on our website. We were also working on creating a short poetry anthology for National Poetry Day. That's the annual celebration of poetry that takes place at the beginning of October each year. The producers of National Poetry Day, Forward Arts Foundation, asked the reader to put together an anthology of poems linked by the theme of this year's celebration, which is choice. The reader's anthology is available to download from our website now, and the poems in it explore ideas of freedom and free will, how the choices we make, for better or worse, form who we are, and how sometimes just being yourself and going with your gut is a choice and a risky one at that. Here's one of the poems from that anthology, read by Lisa. Hi, I'm Lisa and I'm the Teaching and Learning Coordinator at The Reader. Today I'm going to read for you What If This Road by Sheena Pugh. What if this road that has held no surprises these many years decided not to go home after all? What if it could turn left or right with no more ado than a kite tail? What if its tarry skin were like a long, supple bolt of cloth that is shaken and rolled out and takes a new shape from the contours beneath? And if it chose to lay itself down in a new way, Around a blind corner, across hills you must climb without knowing what's on the other side. Who would not hanker to be going at all risks? Who wants to know a story's end or where a road will go? That poem by Sheena Pugh is also on the reader's bookshelf or reading list for this year and it's a poem we've used many times in shared reading groups because it provokes such rich discussion about what it feels like to venture into the unknown or to change course, to take risks. This was a theme too in an interview recorded earlier this year between Annie who is Head of Children and Young People at The Reader, and Jill Smith, 
a Liverpool-based illustrator who previously worked at the Story Barn, which is the reader's interactive story space for young people. Jill is now embarked on a successful career as an illustrator after many years of, as she calls it, hard slog. In the interview we're here now, Jill spoke about her own choices, often partly instinctive and risky, and the road that led to her recent success. Jill also told us about her first major project as illustrator, a collaboration with the novelist Victoria Hislop on the book Maria's Island, which was published back in June by Walker Books. I'm delighted today to be joined by Jill Smith, artist and children's illustrator. Jill is based in Liverpool and has worked with the reader at our interactive story centre, The Story Barn, when it first opened in 2016. We're delighted to celebrate with Jill the upcoming release of her first children's book publication, Maria's Island, authored by Victoria Hislop and published by Walker Books. Thanks so much for being with us today, Jill. Thanks for asking me, Annie. It's great to be here. At the Reader, we do shared reading where we all read aloud together and we find that reading aloud in a room makes the book or the poem come alive in a, in a really real way. And yeah. it has a, an amazing impact on people. You know, it can improve mood, it can ease pain. And I'm intrigued to know, Jill, do you read aloud or were you ever read aloud to as a youngster? Oh, definitely, yeah. My mum, there was always a, you know, bedtime story. My mum, I mean, she still does it now, goes to the library every week. So I remember as a child, you know, a big bag of books and we'd get through them. Um, so yeah, I, I used to love story time. And when I was involved with the reader, that was the first time I'd done shared reading as an adult. And um, I thought it was fantastic. I couldn't get enough. Just hearing people's immediate responses and how different, different people can interpret a sentence. And it's just lovely to hear the words out loud. So yeah, often um, when, I was, when I was illustrating Maria's Island, I did actually read aloud to just get the sound of the words and the rhythm and it's helpful to hear the voice. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for that, Jill. So following on from that, obviously, um, I know you've had a busy period over the last 12 months illustrating, but wondered if you had time to read for pleasure for yourself and if so, what, what books and authors are currently on your reading pile? Oh, well, I've just finished, I've just finished an amazing book that I just keep raving about to everyone. Um, and it's by a, a Liverpool writer, Jeff Young, and it's called Ghost Town, a Liverpool shadow play. So I finished that last week and it just, it was one of those books that, you know, it just got under my skin and I can't stop thinking about it. And it's the first time in, in a while where I've been so hooked. I think I read it in a couple of days. And um, he's just an absolutely wonderful writer. And he writes about his memories of growing up in Liverpool and he sort of takes a wander around Liverpool and sort of laments the lost buildings and the places like the Futurist Cinema where he used to go as a child and be absolutely enchanted by, you know, the magic of film and sort of laments the fact that these buildings have now been lost, knocked down and, you know, a lot of soulless flats have been built in the place. And But he also wanders around his own memories and recalls, the characters from his past, his family, his granddad, um, and it just resonated with me. It reminded me of stories my family had told me about their childhood growing up in Scotty Road. I think sort of books have always, you know, the answers are in books. The answers are in fiction. 
how characters or how writers have deal with being human, the complexities and the confusion of being a human being. I think the answers are in books and I've always looked to them really for wherever I'm at in my life, you know, I'll kind of try and find books that I've got something of what I'm going through in them. Um, so yeah, another book I read recently was um, The Lonely City by Olivia Lang. And she talks about, it was an amazing book as well. She talks about sort of loneliness the human condition and and how it's it can be quite a good thing for creativity uh, how artists have been prolific due to their sort of experience of loneliness in a city so yeah that was a great book yeah that's really interesting because that leads me quite nicely on to kind of talking around you know your work as an artist and an illustrator and what's inspired that work and maybe sharing some of those stories around you know the first time you you started to, you know, create your own books or stories and, and what was it that ignited that interest? Mm. Well, I've always, I've always written diaries. So I've got um, a suitcase full of diaries, you know, from when I was six or seven, which are, you know, the most dull. <laughs> I had some very dull days and I used to draw in my diary. So I'd, I'd draw, you know, what I wanted to buy. <laughs> Like, I really want this rah-rah skirt and I draw that. And so, uh, yeah, drawing and writing as a kind of way of self-expression, um, that's always been there. And then I had some great teachers. Well, my mum, first of all, she was really creative and she liked to draw. So a lot of encouragement came from her. And then, and then I had some just teachers along the way, teachers and tutors who I can really look back and think, God, you know, they, they really did encourage me. and. So I had a teacher called Mr. Lumberg in the junior school and he, I was really shy. I was quite nervous, shy child. And he sort of realised that I liked to draw and he'd have me making things and painting murals. And it just kind of really encouraged that side. And I was powder paint monitor. I was in charge of the powder paint. So I just loved the materials and the paint and brushes and stationery and new felt it pens for Christmas. I mean, I just absolutely loved all of that. And I used to um, read the Bunty comic and I think that was, I thought someone's got that job, you know, someone's drawing all these pictures, someone does that. And I think the sort of drawn image has always been something that I've loved. There was a teacher in school who, uh, after me O-levels said, oh, you know, don't pursue art, there's no work in art. So I dropped it and I, and I went back to art school when I was about 33. And um, what drove you to go back then at, at 33? What was the... I just was still making things at home. I was still, I mean, I was making sculptures and I mean, rubbish little things, but I'd put a blanket out on Bill Street and sell them. And then I'd take them to festivals and sell them. So while I was working at other jobs, I was still, I couldn't help but explore my own creativity. And it was pretty rubbish, but because people bought cards that I'd made and things like that, it just encouraged me to carry on. And um, and I wasn't very good at anything else, Annie. I was, I'd, tried lots of different jobs but my organization isn't strong and my admin skills are not strong so I really struggled in other roles that I was in but with art it was like something I had confidence in from a from an early age I sort of had this oh I can do that I know how to do that so I'm 50 this year and I know that some illustrators they sort of hit the ground running straight away after going to art school and it's just not been like that for me I mean, I still find it challenging. I still find it difficult to put your own work out there 
and um, and for people to see it and make a judgment and I do struggle with imposter syndrome where I just think I'm winging this you know I don't know what the hell I'm doing people are going to find out so I do find it a mental challenge creativity and but then I, I've got to check myself and and realize how lucky I am to be doing something that I love my uncle Frank he just takes the mickey but you know if I say what's well, really hard I've been you know been working on this book and it's really hard and he goes oh it must be terrible Jill sharpening all those bloody pencils must be really hard and you know he maintains roads for a living so so yeah I know I'm really really lucky I'm interested Jill just to dive into a bit of the kind of that illustration process that you kind of go on in that journey so um maybe you could talk a bit about that process for Maria's Island and and what you did to to bring those words to life off the page the first time I read it, I just thought, right, I'm, I'm going to get a pen and paper and just jot down any initial thoughts that come to mind because this is the first time and this is the first response. And I think it was, it just felt important to capture those first ideas or, and, and a lot of them stayed. A lot of the things that uh, I, I jotted down really stuck right throughout the process. Um, and I think the writing's so good. It just, just created pictures in my head instantly. I made some sketches and and made notes and then had the first meeting with the editor, Denise, and Louise, the art director from Walker. And I just said, I need to see Spinner longer. And so within a few days, I was on a plane to Crete and they'd arranged for me to meet Victoria. That was amazing. Getting the boat across to Spinner longer with Victoria Hislop. You know, if there'd been a, a soundtrack... <laughs> playing in the background it would have been really dramatic it was sort of like I can't believe this is actually happening to me and it was so beautiful as well that you know the landscape was absolutely stunning and we got to spin along it and it was just this haunting deserted ghostly crumbling you know I've never never seen anything like it before really I just soaked it all up and kept a sketchbook and um I went off on my own to some mountain villages that were really untouched to try and get a sense of life in Crete before tourism and just did lots of drawings and talked to lots of local people. It was, you know, they were so friendly. Everyone I spoke to was very hospitable and friendly and generous and very proud of Crete. And it, it just gave me this, I got the impression that it was a little bit like Scousers, the way we talk about Liverpool and it, and it reminded me of that, really. It was a, a real sort of down-to-earth, friendly quality about the people there. Every, and family was so important. You know, I was in a taxi and the taxi driver, Maria, was sort of stopping and introducing me to her grandmother and, you know, her cousins. And <laughs> it was um, just a really sort of homely community kind of place. So that became really important to me when I was making the illustrations just try and reflect something of that character and and how important people are to each other and I think that's what was the main thread in the book for me the relationships between Maria and her father and her mother and her friends and then later on the community on Spinner Longer and how much of a bond they must have had you know to be ostracized from the rest of society and you know leave everything behind and, and go and live on this island uh, but they did, it, there was so much hope there because as Victoria Hislop was telling me, you know, 
these wouldn't have been crumbling old caves where people went to die. They went there and they made a life, you know, they had businesses there and decorated their homes in bright colours and, you know, traded. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? Just that sense of uh, hope and a future. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting that you talk about this sense of community and place being so important in, I guess, in the, in the work you did on Maria's Island. But I know we've spoken before about how that's really important to you and, is, and there's been a thread through some of your other work as well. So I just wondered if you could talk a bit about this I guess this importance of sense of place. Community. Community, yeah. I did an MA in Cambridge and um, I tried so hard to make cute picture books. I kept trying about a girl and a rabbit or, um, and it just couldn't, it just wouldn't come. I felt very, I don't think I can do children's books after all. What was I thinking? And then I think um, a tutor, Martin Salisbury, he was brilliant and he always encouraged me to draw what, what I knew or, you know, to go and draw what interested me, even if it didn't fit into the children's book world. So for the first three months of the MA, we just drew. You just go out every day in all weathers. And I just would walk around Liverpool and, and um, draw the places I went to and the communities here. And I think I just really loved drawing people. I've always liked to draw people's gestures and expressions. So anywhere that people gathered was just exciting for me to draw so towards the end of the MA we had to come up with our project which was going to be um, exhibited at Bologna Book Fair and, and I just went into an absolute panic I didn't have anything I didn't have any ideas and and then um, I sort of just had to give up on really trying to fit into what I thought a children's book should be and I think once I gave up on that and I thought well this is my MA and I can do what I like you know if I'm not going to be indulgent now when when will I be so so I ended up doing I was listening to a lot of um, folk music at the time by the Unthanks and and I was reading James Joyce's Dubliners short stories about Irish immigration and and I was thinking about the connection between Ireland and Liverpool and well me, me dad's family were from Ireland and um, and just the stories of them growing up and I think it was just like a jigsaw puzzle it was all these little things that had always been important to me all kind of, I started to join the dots up and made some illustrations based on Evelyn, a short story by James Joyce. And it just felt really easy and natural and I could put myself into the mind of that character. And all the while thinking, I'm blowing this. This is not gonna be picked up by any publishers. It's not a children's book, you know, I've blew it, but I'm gonna enjoy this. And then, and I think that work then went to Bologna and it did get, in, just much to me surprise, publishers showed interest and it won a competition and that the, one of the judges um, from the picture this illustration competition was Louise Jackson, who then gave me work with Walker. So yeah, I just think it actually, it felt like a risk. It felt like I was taking a risk and it paid off, I think. Just to, I think that's really important to actually get your teeth stuck into something that really genuinely interests you. This idea of kind of getting into the, getting published in this process and this journey that you've been on, I wondered if you had any advice for other young budding illustrators and whether you could share some of that. Yeah, I think just don't, don't give up. Don't go hungry. <laughs> Always have other work up your sleeve and do the day job, definitely but just don't give up on it. And if you enjoy it, someone else will as well. Someone else will appreciate your work and it might take a long time. I don't think you ever, I think that 
that's the myth, isn't it? That you um, you learn how to do it and then you become successful and then that's it, you're, you're an illustrator. But I think it's just lifelong trying to develop, trying to get better and just keep evolving. Yeah, I think that's just, you never feel like you've cracked it. There's always more to learn. And yeah, so don't give up. <laughs> There's um, got a quote here by uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce. And he talks about writing, but I think the same can be applied to illustration. It's about keep going and keeping faith, keep going when it's falling apart, keep going when no one else is interested, keep going when it's no fun, when it feels like composition and more like a self-inflicted migraine, keep faith that at some point some unexpected electrical charge will pull everything together and it will feel like the day you first learned to ride a bike. Above all, it is about remembering that that day will come only if you keep turning up and grinding out and that the best ideas don't come while you're thinking or planning, but while you're writing. Sometimes they don't come until just after you've pressed send, but they do come. It's great that, isn't it? Frank Cottrell boys, just, just have some faith and have it, you know, and believe in yourself. Thanks, thanks, Jill. Thanks for the advice. I'm sure there'll be maybe some listeners out there that, that would really love to hear that. So thank you. We're interested to know what's next for you. So, you know, what if you, have you got anything else in the pipeline or any, you know, dreams or wishes of, of who you would like to work with in the future? I, I loved Maria's Island so much. I really enjoyed responding to words and I'd love to illustrate for other writers. And uh, David Almond, who did um, Skellig, one, I'd love to illustrate one of his stories because they're always a little bit gritty and um, otherworldly as well as being very um, grounded in everyday life. So, yeah, something like that, please. <laughs> but, um, also, I'm, I'm doing a, a narrative non-fiction book with Walker, and um, that's coming up soon, and it's going to be about the Titanic. So I'm really looking forward to um, immersing myself in that period of history and, uh, and looking at the passengers and the costumes and the different classes and doing some research, but... That'll be me writing for the first time. So that's quite challenging. Yeah, and other than that, I think I just want to get out and, and see people and friends and family again after being in lockdown. I think it's time to um, to live a bit. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for joining us um, today. It's been so lovely to have you with us and to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Annie. It's been great. That was Jill Smith talking to Annie Lord from The Reader. Maria's Island is out now and you can see more of Jill's beautiful work on her website jillsmithillustration.com and on Instagram. Part of the beauty of shared reading is that you don't always know where the reading and discussion will lead or which story or poem will strike home in the mind of the reader. When choosing what to read in a shared reading session, group leaders often have to go with their gut and try and be bold, to challenge preconceptions and take risks. Claire Ellis, who is head of teaching and learning at The Reader, has an unexpected story to tell about being bold. We have a value in our shared reading groups and when we uh, teach people in how to deliver shared reading. And that value is be bold with what you choose to read with people. 
Um, and by that, we often mean, you know, don't be frightened of choosing literature that takes you to deep emotional places. Um, don't be frightened of literature that might talk in a language that might feel unfamiliar, uh, very old, for example, or take you to a place that's quite um, new. So kind of take that risk. But what I think is also important to remember with stories, um, literature choices and being bold is that we've really, really got to stay open-minded uh, to what might resonate with someone. So, for example, I remember um, doing a session in a uh, rehab centre and this guy had been um, in and out of prison, had had a very hard time of it and was back in rehab for, you know, a second, second occasion. And previously to my meeting him, he'd been reading with one of our other uh, staff members several years before. And uh, he came up to me after the session and he said, oh, there's this story that I've never, ever got out of my head and that one of your colleagues read with me. And I said, oh, yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, what story might have grabbed this person so much that despite their difficulties, this story has stuck. And I was imagining, you know, I'm thinking, oh, was it a, a story that really speaks to a, a, a challenging life experience and so on? And, um, and then he starts describing it to me. He said, it's about this lad who gets into trouble. Um, and as he's saying it, I'm thinking, it feels like this is the lumber room by Saki. And um, I said to him, it's not about um, a, a lad who finds a key to a room uh, where there's all kinds of kind of interesting objects inside. And he said, yeah. I said, it wasn't called the lumber room. And he said, yeah. Can you bring it in again next week? Because I've always remembered that story. So, uh, yeah, I often think about, well, actually, in a way, it was a reminder that be bold in trust in the ordinary as well. Trust in the quiet stories that um, speak to perhaps the um, simpler part of ourselves. Be bold in that way. Be bold with the simplicity, I think. Um, and so this is the first paragraph of the story that I'll just read out and that this person remembered uh, and that I've read in a lot of groups over the years and that has always gone down uh, very well indeed. The Lumber Room by Saki The children were to be driven as a special treat to the sands at Jagborough. Nicholas was not to be of the party. He was in disgrace. Only that morning he had refused to eat his wholesome bread and milk on the seemingly frivolous ground that there was a frog in it. Older and wiser and Better people had told him that there could not possibly be
beer frog in his bread and milk and that he was not to talk nonsense. He continued, nevertheless, to talk what seemed the veriest nonsense and described with much detail the coloration and markings of the alleged frog. The dramatic part of the incident was that there really was a frog in Nicholas's basin of bread and milk. He had put it there himself, so he felt entitled to know something about it. The sin of taking a frog from the garden and putting it into a bowl of wholesome bread and milk was enlarged on at great length. But the fact that stood out clearest in the whole affair as it presented itself to the mind of Nicholas was that the older, wiser and better people had been proved to be profoundly in error in matters about which they had expressed the utmost assurance. <laughs> I leave it with yourselves to make up your mind about um, Nicholas. Always raises much discussion in groups, I think, whether those words go together, older and wiser and better. And actually, whether it's our... Um, childhood selves that carry wisdom that we still need to listen to and not forget as we become older. That's it for this episode of The Reader Podcast. Many thanks to Seren Books and Sheena Pugh for allowing us to read What If This Road. Thanks to Jill Smith and to Annie, Claire and Lisa from The Reader for their contributions. Grateful thanks to Chris Lynn for his sound editing and production support. The Reader relies on the support of our core funders, Arts Council England, the National Lottery Community Fund, the Players of the People's Postcode Lottery and the Steve Morgan Foundation. We'll be back sooner rather than later for more conversation recommendations and shared reading. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe and help us spread the word. Or you can visit the Reader website to find many other ways to support the work we do. On the website, you'll also find the National Poetry Day anthology, the Reader magazine, and lots more to read, listen to and enjoy. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Until next time, goodbye.